Hi everybody, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2 today. And the bumper sticker slogan, Jesus saves, I think is something that we can all agree on as Christians that he does. Jesus does save. But who he saves and how he saves them and what it means to be saved is something that gets argued over and over again in the world today. A professor from Bellarmine College stated, Historically speaking, our churches are divided and they are sending many different kinds of signals today in our world and that is something we need to be concerned about. And he's right. This is something that we need to be concerned about as Christians as a part of the church today, especially when it comes to salvation. For the last several weeks, we've been going through this series called Pivot, where we examine that when someone has an encounter with Jesus, their life is changed. And as we wrap up this series today, we're going to be examining how someone encounters Jesus and how they respond to that. You know, how to become a Christian is the most important question that the church today can answer. And before we go any further, I want to first establish that I don't know where you are at with your individual relationship with Jesus, but no matter where you are in your walk with him, I think we can all find value in the answer to this question, how do you become a Christian? We can all benefit from this answer that we find in Scripture. Because if you're not a Christian, the last thing that you need is mixed signals and unclear instruction as to how to become a Christian. If you're a believer, um, you need to be confident that you have met the criteria that God has set in Scripture for you to follow. And if you're a mature Christian, you always need to be able to help someone find this answer and to find how they can be saved through Jesus Christ. And as the church, it is our job to help people understand the answer to this question, how they can become a follower of him. And the worst thing that we can do in the, as the church today is to send mixed signals and an unclear instruction as to how someone can follow Jesus. And so as we start today, I'd like for us to acknowledge and agree upon three things. Um, the first is to listen objectively. And that we don't want to just sit here and um, ask and, and see if what I'm saying lines up with what you have previously thought or have been taught. You know, this is not a test of your belief system. Let's just simply open up the Bible and see what it has to say about this question. And no matter what you've been previously taught or thought, um, we look to the Bible as the ultimate authority on everything. The second is to study thoroughly. And let's not take one piece of scripture out of context and build an entire theology upon it. The Bible says to rightly divide the word of truth. You know, some people take one verse out of context and they close everything off, their mind everything off of what the Bible has to say. And this is why there are so many mixed signals out there. We need to study thoroughly and examine what the entire Bible says about this. And the third is to begin correctly. The Bible in its entirety is this, our source of authority. But the place to study to find out how to become a Christian begins after Jesus died and rose again from the grave. A Christian is someone who follows the resurrected Jesus. And so to answer this question, how do you become a Christian? We do not go to encounters that Jesus had with people during his life. 
Because the interactions that Jesus had with Nicodemus, the woman at the well, the thief on the cross, show us what it means to follow Jesus, but it doesn't tell us how to follow him. Technically, those people were still living under the Old Testament law. Jesus had not come to do what he had originally came to do yet, accomplish his mission. And so to correctly discover how to become a Christian, the right place to start is directly after Jesus rose from the grave. And that puts us in Acts, the book of Acts. And on the day of Pentecost, his disciples and his apostles went out into the streets and they started beginning to tell people about who Jesus is and what he has done for them. And as people started to gather around and listen to what they were saying, Peter, the chief spokesperson of the day, kind of gets up and preaches the very first gospel sermon ever preached. And this is part of what he said. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed him in the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Let all of the house of Israel know, therefore, for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So from the beginning account of how Christianity began, I want us to take a look at three steps that we must take in order to become a Christian. And the first step is to believe the gospel. Now on that day, they asked Peter, now what should we do? Because they believed at what they were being told. His words pierced their heart because they believed the truth of what Peter was saying to them. They were convicted, and you can't be convicted by something that you believe to be false. And the word gospel here, it literally means the good news. And the good news is this, that the creator of the universe has reached down to earth to save us. And even though that we deny his existence sometimes as a society, we rebel against him, he still loves us. And he came to the earth in the form of Jesus Christ and he laid down his life in order to offer us salvation and cleanse us of our sin and our guilt. And if we believe that, if we believe that that to be true, then we have the ultimate purpose of living and we are promised salvation completely free of charge. Jesus paid the price fully. And in order to to become a Christian and a follower of Jesus, we have to believe that this is true. Ephesians 2 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man can boast. So for this first step of becoming a Christian, we are to believe that the gospel is true. And that it is really true. It's not just something that we mentally acknowledge. It's not something that we say, well, I guess it's true. But we truly believe with everything that we are that the gospel is the word of God and it is truth. To believe is to personally commit to who Jesus is and the truth of the gospel. You know, 
One night last summer, around midnight, my wife and I, we woke up to our house being completely filled with smoke. And um, there had been a fire in our kitchen, and it was that through that experience, I learned the value and the importance of smoke detectors. But smoke detectors, even if they're working properly, when a smoke detector goes off, um, you have to believe that there is an emergency. Because when a smoke detector goes off and we don't believe that there's actually a fire, it does no good. We have to believe that something is actually worth believing, that there is actually an emergency. Step number two, to repent of sins. John MacArthur wrote a book entitled The Gospel According to Jesus. And in it, he states that repentance is the most overlooked teaching in the church today. And he says that we've been teaching easy believism, cheap grace, just accept Jesus and live however you want to. He'll save you anyway. But we need to start teaching biblical repentance of sins. On the day of Pentecost, they asked Peter, what should we do? And he said, repent. And to repent means simply just to change direction or to turn. You know, we were going away from God's will, but now we are going towards him. We were once self, living selfishly, but now we are living um, in order to obey him. You know, the Greek word for repent means to change the mind or attitude. So your attitude was once cynical, but now it's teachable. You were once proud and arrogant, but now you are submissive to God's direction. Repentance is not a declaration of future perfection, but it's rather a sign and change of general direction. You know, there was a, a woman who was buying a shirt for her husband and she noticed the tag that said, it's shrink resistant. And being confused, she asked the clerk what this means and he said, oh, well, it'll shrink, but it just doesn't want to. And this is kind of the same thing for us when we become a Christian. We will still sin, but we don't want to. Our mind has been changed and that is repentance. And general repentance includes three responses to the gospel. And the first one being conviction. You know, I was wrong. I admit my sins. I admit that I was wrong. When David was confronted with his sin of adultery, he admitted his wrongdoing. He admitted his sin. He said, I have sinned and I have done what is evil in your sight. There is no denial. There is no shifting blame. I have sinned. Response number two, contrition, remorse. Uh, Richard Ramirez was the famous night stalker who killed dozens of girls in L.A. And when he was given the death sentence, this is how he responded. Big deal. Death comes with the territory. See you at Disneyland. Repent. A repented person is not defiant. Um, there's a sense of brokenness. In Psalm 34, it says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. Number three, there's change. It is not enough just to cry over our sins, but there needs to be a transformation that occurs. Judas Iscariot was sorry about and upset about what he had done to Jesus, but the Bible says that he was such seized with remorse that he took that 30 pieces of silver and he bought a field and he committed suicide. He was too proud to change his behavior. But that very night, Peter, who had denied Jesus three times, he wept bitterly. But over a month later, we hear we find him in Acts, a changed person speaking and teaching about who Jesus is and what he has done. A repented person um, is to change, 
is to go the other direction. I was once deceptive in business, but now I'm honest. I cheated in school, but now I tell the truth. I was once harsh to my wife, but now I'm tender. Repentance requires change. Step number three is to respond to Jesus Christ. And if I were to win the lottery, I would still have to take the check and get it cashed and put the funds in the right place where they need to go. I didn't earn that money, but I still had to respond in order to receive it. And now salvation is a free gift that we get to receive, but we have to respond to it individually. And to respond to this, um, this free gift that we have, we find two responses in Scripture. The first response is to openly confess our faith. Romans 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe with your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. When Jesus died, he did it publicly. He did it during the day up on a hill and during a Jewish feast where there were hundreds of thousands of visitors there to witness it. And when accepting him, he, uh, he asked us to do the same thing, publicly confess that he is Lord and Savior over our lives. You know, every Sunday um, when service ends, Laura and my wife will go down to Kid Life and she'll get my, my daughter Callie and bring her back up to the front. And every week, it's the best part of my week, I hear my little girl, is my two-year-old daughter, running down the hallway yelling, Daddy, 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 towards me. And I don't know what parent wouldn't just love that if they experienced it. And that's what Jesus is asking us to do for him. To openly confess that he is our father and that what he has done for us. Now we do this by the great confession. We proclaim that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. You know, the second response is to be baptized into Jesus Christ. You know, they ask Peter, what shall we do? And he tells them, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, when we get married, we go through the marriage ceremony. And there's a lot that precedes the ceremony. You know, you fall in love with each other. There's the commitment. And there's a lot that goes on after the ceremony as well. But we point to the marriage ceremony as the benchmark of the beginning of our relationship. You know, there have been um, a lot of instances where there be, you do it between uh, in front of two people or in front of 500 people. But when you exchange rings and, and vows and you walk back down the center aisle, you might say, well, I don't feel any different. But we all know that things are very different. God has given the practice of baptism as a ceremony that unites our lives with him. And a lot goes on before that. There's the commitment, there's the falling in love, and a lot takes place afterwards. But we point to the baptism as a benchmark in our relationship where transition takes place in our life. Romans 6 says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. 
Jesus' final words to his disciples were to go into the world and to make disciples by baptizing them. Now, if, we were, if he were to tell them that, go into the world and make disciples, and when you do, um, tell them to walk around the church seven times or to give $1,000 to the church. If that's what he said, that's what we would tell people. But that's not what he said. And that's not what makes sense. Baptism makes sense. It's a symbol of our death and our sin and our, is being buried with Christ. And we are now cleansed. 1 Peter 3.21 says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism just makes sense. And that's why on the day of Pentecost, when people were baptized that day, 3,000 of them responded immediately. You know, some people have become baptism regenerationalists where they, when they're asked this question of what do I need to do to be saved, they'll just say, oh, all you got to do is get in the water. But some people would even make this a magic formula to where they perform this on infants and somehow magically make them Christian. But baptism is only meaningful when it's done by the one who believes in the gospel and has repented of their sins. And some people have emphasized this on the other end of the spectrum where they'll say, repent and sign a card or repent and say the sinner's prayer in order to show that salvation is not done by works that we do. But the fact is that baptism is not work that we do in order to earn salvation. Baptism is not even something we can do to ourselves and by ourselves. You know, a lot of times when people have questions about baptism, a lot of times they go something like this. You know, I was baptized as a baby, but I wasn't, didn't really know what I was doing. Do I have to do it again, or is that good enough? Or I was sprinkled when I was 12, but I knew what I was doing, but I wasn't immersed. Do I have to do it again, or is that good enough? Or I was immersed when I was a kid, but I only did it because everybody else was doing it. So do I have to do it again, or is that good enough? You know, at Broadway, we baptize only by immersion. And the reason for that is because the, bap the word baptism literally means to dip, immerse, sinking ship, or to kill by drowning. And now I promise that we will not drown you if you want to get baptized. But at Broadway, we baptize only by immersion because we want to be as closely tied to Scripture as possible. And so some people will use these questions to stall, um, to put off what the they know the Bible is telling them to do. And instead of surrendering to God's plan, they will push and they will fight. And I think that reflects the wrong attitude. And this attitude of what is the least that I can do in order to get by? You know, after all Jesus has done for us, and if Jesus truly is Lord, then shouldn't we be doing everything we can that he says? In Acts chapter 8, we find the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. And he had just been to Jerusalem to worship, but he had eventually heard about the coming Messiah. And so on his way home, he grabs the book of Isaiah and he begins to read it. And Philip, seeing what he is doing, he asks him, do you understand what you are reading? To which he replies, no, I need someone to guide me. So Philip takes this opportunity to teach him about who Jesus is and what he has done. And the eunuch immediately says, look, there is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? You know, we have a choice um, today, which is the question that we have to ask ourselves, why should I or why shouldn't I? 
You know, he was presented with the truth and responded. Today we have been presented with the clear truth. And the question is, will you respond? Let's pray. Father God, we just we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for the ability to communicate and to speak to us. And as we try to wrestle with this question of how we become a follower of you, how do we become a Christian, um, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you have told us. We thank you for the gift of baptism to mark and to symbolize the point in our life where we have made the decision to live for you. And God, we can't thank you enough for the sacrifice of your son to make that possible, the forgiveness of our sins, the gospel, the good news, um, that you would send your son so that we don't have to pay the punishment for our sins. And God, as we remind, remember that each and every week we take communion in orders that we will not um, ever forget that what you have done for us. God, we thank you so much for everything that you do for us in our lives. Um, and we pray this all in your son's name. Amen.